Welcome to the Catholic Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and today is September 7th, 2020. Today, I'm super excited to have uh, Alexander Brown on the show. Alexander is a seminarian at St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, and he is also a research associate at the Leonine Institute for Catholic Social Teaching, uh, an organization at which I am a uh, fellow. So Alexander uh, wrote an article in the Institute's magazine, the inaugural issue of the magazine that just came out uh, last week. And so I'll put a link to that. Please check that out. There's lots of great stuff in there. And uh, if you'd like to support the Institute uh, in one way or another, uh, feel free to check out the support page there. And uh, I'm sure the Institute would appreciate that greatly. So, uh, Alex, I, I want to I just want to talk to you about your article because uh, it's about the history of the idea of subsidiarity and, and not in the, not the history of the idea in the sense that, you know, we're trying to figure out what people thought about subsidiarity, really. It's, it's more about how was it applied uh, in in the past in the West. And so I, I guess to start off, like what 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 motivated you to write specifically about history? I know the I know the magazine had a, a theme for the issue, but uh, what what motivated you to talk about the history of subsidiarity? Well, that's a very interesting question because history just always fascinates me as a broad subject. But what interests me about the history of subsidiarity is that when you look backwards in history, you know you see uh, small cultures, you see small communities. So it's easy to kind of romanticize the past and say, well, you know, we want to go back to the past. Um, but, you know, you have this inclination that people really had an awareness of, like, we know what they were doing. So I wanted to find where people intentionally sought to preserve subsidiarity and where they wanted to keep their business and, uh, you know, their family and their community small and to, to work at the lowest possible level. So it really was a, a hunt for me to find where subsidiarity existed, um, you know, in the past. Got it. So, if uh, so, how would you summarize the the idea of subsidiarity in uh, in in Western history in the sense that um, how important is it? Like, I mean, was was subsidiarity something that was just like a, a conscious policy decision like we would today? You know, like we're, we're going to have, you know, the tariff rate in China is going to be this this amount or whatever. Or was it just more kind of an attitude and, and something that came naturally from uh, the religion or or wh where do you think that that's that source was? I think it's both and like most things, Catholicism. So originally it was an organic development. Um, like I said, communities were small. You knew all your neighbors, you relied on all your neighbors. There are a couple of stereotypes about the, the past that I really reject and kind of get angry when I hear. Um, like for instance, this idea we have of the Middle Ages being the Monty Python-esque, you know, people were stupid, what like dirty, like whatever, that's yeah. false. Yeah, like mu know, muck farmers, monsters. right? <laughs> right. Just. <laughs> You know, so that's ridiculous. But something that isn't ridiculous about the Middle Ages, about really the past as a whole, 
is that they were very dangerous. You know, um, I'm working through uh, Mamet's Arthinian legends right now, which is a little bit of a tangent, but in it, he talks about like, there's robbers roaming the countryside. Um, and like, that's just a reality of the past. So subsidiarity was a necessity. You needed to trust the people around you because you didn't know what was in the outside world. So it was an organic development like that. But what we find when I wrote in the article, I wrote about the statute of artificers or the statute of um, artisans, as it's also called. That was an intentional decision to preserve subsidiarity in England because things were really falling apart at the time of writing. You know, we had the English Reformation. You had um, the Civil War was was kind of starting. People were, were getting at each other's throats. So what Elizabeth and Parliament tried doing was basically return to tradition as much as the cliche sounds. They were trying to go back to what was working and save England by going to what was natural. So it, it is both and it's an organic development because you know it was just a necessity of the ancient, the, the modern, postmodern world um, being dangerous, you know, it's something you always find. But you do find milestones where it's an intentional there's an intentionality to preserve subsidiarity. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, one of the one of the main themes you had in 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 this piece was uh, you talked about the the idea of apprenticeship and how and it, and it really was interesting I think because you you really did a good job describing kind of how apprenticeship was kind of woven into the the fabric of society. It wasn't it wasn't just the you know this this kind of uh, uh, job training program. I mean of course you know college today or whatever or uh, you know some kind of job training program. It's it is it is part of our society in the sense that you know when you reach a certain age you're just sort of expected to uh, you know leave your house and go find this. Um, uh, you know, training or whatever. And, and often, you know, I mean, obviously I've, I've personally <laughs> said a lot of bad things about the idea of, you know, moving away from your family to go to college and live with a bunch of, uh, you know, people your own age and, uh, how ridiculous <laughs> you, you end up acting, uh, partly because of that, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, and not you specifically, obviously but <laughs> in general, right. <laughs> I'm not talking about you, but, um, but, so you in there you explain this idea that you know someone would be an apprentice and they would go off and live so can you just kind of sketch that out real briefly and and maybe maybe tell us why it is that uh, or like what what age a person would leave their house to go live with this master of the trade and then because uh, that was one of the things that as I was reading I was kind of wondering it's like okay well you know, if it, if it takes at one point, you mentioned it takes like seven years uh, for you to go from being an apprentice to a master or something like that. And, you know, how how long? I mean, so do I start when I'm 12 or do I start when I'm 20? I mean, how, how does that can you sketch that out and, and let us know the age thing a little bit? Sure. The age thing depends upon what trade you go into. Um, some were more labor intensive than others. So that really shapes part of it. But really, if you're not spoken for by time you're 12, at 12 years old, you were really supposed to be pulling your weight for the community. Actually, in in this community that that uh, I'm a part of, like my hometown, they were agrarian based, and they had this ritual of giving the young woman when she was 12 years old a sewing needle and the young men a uh, pen by the time they're 12 years old, as just a symbol that they're supposed to be pulling their weight now. So, you know, that's a really hard question to ask, but I'm going to say 12 years old, you should be spoken for as an apprentice. 
Okay. And so the the thing is, is when, when you say spoken for as an apprentice, so it's like, so, you know, if I'm, I'm the, I'm a male child in my household, let's say I've got, uh, you know, I don't know, seven or eight brothers and sisters. So how, how does my, do, so my family just kind of says, well, you know, bye-bye. And then, you know, you're going to go off across town or am I going to go across the countryside? Where, where am I going to go? And, and I mean, cause to me, it's, you know, we, today we talk about, a lot about community and you know we live in this this modern world where you know we can jump on the highway we can jump on the interstate and we can be uh we can be living in a completely different city hundreds of you know especially in the u.s right uh you know several hundreds of miles away from our home in a very little time but so you know when 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 some young guy right some 12 year old guy would leave and go to be an apprentice somewhere i mean what how far is he going is he going across town is he is he leaving and and you know are you say you know contributing and, and all of this and so obviously you know a lot of people you know would make their living on a farm right i mean you would have you would have a farm that's how you produced for yourself right or for the lord or whatever but as far as these apprenticeships go would, would all of the boys leave would the girls do the girls have something like that or do they just hang around until they got married no, the girls have something like that too. Um, women were responsible for a lot of textile trades. Um, so like you needed to know things to make a good home. Um, but as far as like where you go, so a lot of the guilds in, you know, 11th to the 15th century, they were city-based. Um, the guild masters had a lot to do with their community. So when you talk about going away for apprentice, you're not going across the country, you're staying within your city's district. Um, so even the apprenticeship program were kept small. Now this changed when we started doing ex explorations, um, when you started needing artisans overseas in the colonies. You know, of course I'm thinking predominantly England, Ireland, Wales, um, and their explorations. But when you go across the seas and you need artisans, the apprentice would go with them. But mainly you're you're talking about keeping it local. Um, the apprentice would be lack of a better word, given to a master through the negotiation of father to master. So it wasn't like the, the father was sending off his son to God knows where. Um, the family did have some control over where the apprentice went, and usually that was within the city boundaries. Got it. Okay. Well, I think I think that's just such an interesting uh, point, and, and I think it's valuable to talk about this historical stuff for its own sake. But I think also this is where we, we can get into this idea of um, kind of applying this in uh, our lives today. You know, I mean, I, obviously we can't, uh, you know, we don't just, we don't have guilds and stuff today, but maybe we will at some point in the future, but your mouth to God's ears. Right. Yeah. See, and, and I think that's, um, I want to I want to ask you to kind of jump out on a limb here because I know at the end of the at the end of your piece you say uh, you know how do we how do we live it out today right so you, you know and, and we're talking about subsidiarity and specifically apprenticeships how do we live it out today and you say uh, you know the answer to that question I will leave to my betters <laughs> but but um, I want I want to ask you to step out on a limb because my my thing is you know I value expertise in some ways uh, obviously. You know, I, I mean, I, I have a Ph.D., so I mean, I, I see the value in that to an extent to, you know, going into even as as broken as the uh, the academic system is today uh, and, and learning things at the highest possible level. Um, but I guess my 
my thing is like, I don't have a great grasp on all of this history. I'm not a historian. And so uh, to me, there's a ton of wisdom just in sort of, there seems to be a ton of wisdom just in absorbing what, um, what has been, uh, you know, what, what has been the case in the past. And so, I mean, maybe you, you don't have the, the necessarily the technical expertise, you know, today talking about cooperatives and, and business forms and all of that stuff. But, what 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 is your what is your general feeling about how how we can uh, improve our current system? Because I you know like you said, return to tradition, right? And and you know it's it's sort of a joke. I mean, what are you going to do? Just you know blow everything up? Uh, but but to me, there there is a there's an a, there should be some way for us to use the principles that we've had we have used in the past and and reapply them today. So what what do you think about um about that? How how can we? What can we learn today from uh, these th- this apprenticeship program that that's very focused on subsidiarity? Yeah, there are a lot of there are a couple ways you can go with that, and obviously um, I won't bore you with every every thought I've had there. But you know, first, like you said, we can't just blow everything up. Um, it's not about returning to a pre-industrial era. You know, that's just not going to happen. Um, and I think you mentioned that in uh, your talk on the usury and meaning of Catholic, right? Like you know, we can't return physically to where we were in in 1563. But what the past does give us is a litmus test of what has worked and what has not, right? So when we're talking about new policies, what we should have in the back of our minds are what did the guilds look like and how did they work and how did apprenticeship work and how did education work and what did teaching children like apprentice, what did that look like? So when you're looking at building new universities and you have huge campuses with huge you know, bureaucratic boards, you compare them in your head and you're like, well, this isn't right. We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't fund um, large corporations that have no respect to the workers, that have no intention to teach those working in the business the ins and outs of the business. So it's not about necessarily tearing down in my mind, but more of go going forward in picking a direction of how we want to go forward. Um, I think that's like the broadest way we can apply history to where we are now. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I guess my question would be, uh, if, what is what is something you're aware of today in the way things work? And I know you're a seminarian. And so, uh, you know, that that is a uh, an academic pursuit that um that that le- doesn't lend itself to a, an apprenticeship, I guess. We haven't had an apprenticeship for priesthood for probably a long time if we ever did, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, wh- what do you think about, I mean, just, I mean, you have friends who, you know, have presumably gone off to different, uh, uh, you know, things after high school and all of that. What what do you think that um, we can do to improve the the sort of training and education of, of maybe even just friends, you know, friends of yours that you know? Uh, that I'm a little hesitant to articulate since I don't know the, like you said, the ins and outs of, of modern education. Um, what's something we can do to improve? Mainly just stopping the stigma around working in a trade. Um, I think a lot of my friends when going off to, you know, to college, to higher education, they wanted to do things like they wanted to go into construction or they wanted to, you know, to go into a trade that would be hands-on, but they were discouraged from doing so because you know it doesn't make money or, or this reason and that reason. Um, so I think it's just on our level, I've experienced a discouragement of 
learning for learning's own sake, um, the, the trades. Right. Well, so I, I guess that that would be another, I mean, I, I guess this is part of the, part of the reality that, you know, life, life just seems to have been simpler back then. It's like you, the assumption in your head, you know, as you're a kid is that this is what I'm going to go do, right? I'm either going to hang out here and, and work on the farm or I'm going to go and, uh, you know, learn some kind of a trade as an, as an apprentice and I'm leaving at this age roughly or whatever. Uh, but the, I guess today the assumption is completely different, right? The assumption is, and, and, and I, I mean, I said this last week in my, uh, my, my prediction of doom for my own field, which is uh, <laughs> higher education, uh, that, you know, the assumption today is that if, you know, I mean, you're flat out told your whole life, if you don't go to college, you know, you're going to be homeless, you're going to be in prison, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right, and, of, right. and of course that's, obviously not the case because something like I think 38% of people in the U S have degrees. But I guess I, I, to me, when I, when I was reading your piece, it kind of felt like, you know, this is one of the things that's really important for us to get across is that there is, there isn't a, uh, there isn't a need for us to really, uh, completely upend society. But one of the things we need to get right is that we have to stop telling our children that they have to go to college and that college is the only way for you to get anywhere in life. And, and to me, what's really crucial about that is there's so many policy incentives that go into that. I mean, the, the, the high schools themselves, uh, you know, their prestige is decided on, you know, how many and where their students go to college, uh, you know, after they graduate. And, you know, as far as parents go, it's, I feel like with the boomers, it was like, you know, they, they, they saw this as just, that was the way we were going to continue to, uh, you know, increase everyone's wealth, right. was, was human capital, right. We're going to send everybody to college and everybody's going to get smarter. But I think by the time Gen X rolled around, it it was just sort of assumed like, this is just how things are going to have to be. And, uh, and so then, especially with my generation, cause I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you, you know, my generation and yours both, I mean, it was just, it was just baked in. So it seems like there's, there's at least, it gives us a hope this, this whole discussion of apprenticeship and stuff, it gives us hope that there is a way for us to turn this around and, and create a different set of, uh, sort of baseline assumptions to, um, you know, the way we do things. And so would you, would you agree with that? Oh, wholeheartedly. Yeah. You know, we, we tell our kids that they have to go to these, these institutions. I tell our kids, I mean, look at me. Um, (laughs) We, you know, you grow up hearing that you have to go to these institutions, but these institutions, they just kind of process you, you know, they don't really, they don't really tailor anything to your skill set, which is how the apprenticeship flourished. Right. So like, the, the master could actually work with the, the apprentice as a human being. Right. Um, so. Well, and I think that that speaks to something, some of the criticisms that higher education has, has dealt with. Uh, I'm thinking of Brian Kaplan, who is a libertarian uh, economist, uh, but we won't hold that against him in this particular <laughs> instance. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he talks about, uh, he has this, man, I can't remember the name of the book, but he has a book, on the concept of the sheepskin effect, where the whole the whole purpose of your education is actually just to get the degree. You know what I mean? Like, so if you and the evidence for this is something like, you know, if you have, uh, you, you would think that if if, if education itself is what uh, improved your life 
okay, as, a, as an individual student, then you would think that, you know, one year of college and then, you know, two years of college, well, two years of college would increase your wage roughly double what one year would. Or, or the, the point is, at least there would be some kind of linear gradient there, right? Uh, one year of education would give you sort of a predictable increase. But what the reality is, is that uh, you get these two or three years and they have some increase in your salary. And then, boom, all of a sudden, when you get the degree, Right. So it's it's the sheepskin. Right. You, you put this you put this sheepskin on and now the wolf looks like a sheep. Right. right. It's it's whether or not you get the degree. That's what determines uh, whether or not you're actually going to get some kind of an increase in your uh, lifetime earnings. And and the other thing that he talks about is this idea of a sorting mechanism. So it's it's not so much, uh, you know, what you uh, what you learn in school, it's which school did you go to and, uh, you know, what your, what your degree is in and your G your GPA, right? So like all these employers that require degrees, I mean, for instance, like when I was in college, I worked for enterprise rent a car and I couldn't be at the, like the, the basement level. I kind of had to be like a car wash guy who wore a tie because (laughs) like you had to have a degree to actually be, you know, a full-time employee. And it's like, it didn't matter what your degree was. I mean, you could have a degree in English literature and, you know, that degree would be good enough to get you in on the, on the ground floor. And so again, it's it's evidence that, you know, it's, it's not about the content it's about the um, it's about just whether or not you're there and, and the sorting mechanism of the whole thing. So do you as far as your study of apprenticeship, do you do you see some way that that the the apprenticeships uh, mimic this kind of thing? Like what I'm thinking is, you know, I go and uh, and if I'm going to be an apprentice with, uh, you know, Jim down the street rather than Bob. You know, and, and if Bob has a, uh, you know, maybe Bob has a higher, um, an, a higher place in the guild, or you know, something like that. Was there, was there some kind of sorting that went on in, in this, uh, in this apprenticeship type of thing? Like, were, were certain masters sort of vying for, you know, the local guys that they thought would be good in their trade, or how did that? Did, did you, hear, did you read anything about that? They, yes, that does exist. Um, you know, I mean, it always exists. You have your better at what you do than you're sought out you know you want you know your father you have your son you say like i want my son to go to to jim rather than bob um because i want him to get higher in the community and just be sought after but the thing about keeping about going back to subsidiarity and how it's natural no matter how good you are a master can only keep four apprentices five apprentices at the most oh i see they're, they're living in his house right yeah you know and you can only there's only so much work to go around, and that's why there are so many. That's why there were so many like little shops in in the past, mm-hmm. because this was all tied into like what you could actually manage. Well, and I would imagine that the guild itself is trying to to manage the supply, right? Like you don't want you don't want every master taking on five guys and and just cranking out this massive explosion in the number of blacksmiths or whatever. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, like you said, there's only. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many customers, you know, over any short time period, right? And I, I can hear my fellow PhD economists, you know, yammering about the, the lump of labor fallacy and all this nonsense. But for the purposes of this, you know, the, the short-sighted kind of short-term kind of thing is there's only so many customers. So I can't just, you know, prolifically uh, multiply blacksmiths, right? Exactly. Actually, I um, 
before entering seminary, I used to work for a company. We were blacksmiths. We used to do reconstruction work on period houses in the historic uh, style. And my, my master, the man who taught me, he would always used to joke that when my time was up, he'd ask me to move as far away from him as he as I could. Right. <laughs> like I was, yeah. you know, and he'd say that pretty regularly, actually, and it hurt a little bit. Yeah, right. Of course. Well, also, well, I guess here, here's another follow up on that. So was there was there this idea that, uh, you know, some people didn't make it as masters. So like they just ended up kind of, I don't know, uh, uh, building a little house somewhere near the master and they just work there like as an employee kind of. There is. They're called journeymen. OK, um, I see. And ap- apprentices would graduate in a, a sort of sense to journeymen when their seven years was up when they could no longer legally be an apprentice. Mm. But in order to be an apprentice, you have to create a masterpiece, a master's piece. I see. So, and that was like your thesis. So you'd go before the guild with your master's piece. And if you were were good enough, that's when they grant you the rank of master. Right. So it's sort of like the, the I mean, this this is similar to, I think, graduate degrees and stuff like this today. Like you said, you know, masterpiece, like your thesis, right? So then thinking master's degrees or PhDs, you know, where you have this, you know, this work that's supposed to at least, it's certainly not going to be your best thing ever, you know, you ever do. But it it's supposed to kind of, you know, get, get you over a hurdle, I guess. Uh, okay. So that, and that makes sense. But so then if, if someone failed that, I guess it, it wasn't like, oh, back to back to being apprentice. No, you just you became a journeyman and that was the deal, right? That was the deal, right? And just a, a note on you asked in the beginning of this how things were kept local. When you were a master, you were given something that's called freedom of the city. Okay. So that gave you essentially the right to vote. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's in, in modern terms, but. Another incentive to keep things local. That's what you wanted. You worked for the good of your community. Right. Right. So the, the position of master was a very coveted one. They didn't just let anyone in. Right. And, and I think that that maybe it's sort of like what separates these guilds from cooperatives. And I don't, I don't want to get into cooperatives, but, you know, right. cooperatives, the whole thing is, is, you know, you're you're pooling the equity of all of the, you know, whatever it is, farmers or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever kind of co-op you have. And, and every person who is a member also has a vote. And. And so I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of discussion in co-ops of this you know, sort of democracy kind of uh, idea. But what you're saying is the guilds weren't really run that way. You had to actually achieve a certain level before you were able to have some kind of control rights over uh, the, the organization of the guild itself. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I think this has all been really interesting, Alexander, and I appreciate, uh, again, you writing this article and and kind of laying out this apprenticeship stuff. And, and I hope that this episode is helpful to people who, who read the article and and check all of your footnotes and get all those references down. And maybe this is a, a way for them to kind of expand uh, on on this article. So I appreciate your time, Alexander. Thanks. And I hope to have you on again soon. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it was my pleasure.